is ruled by violence, and the soul of mankind fades. The children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. In August 1985, issue 47 of Fangoria arrived at my house. Inside, I stumbled across the pages of a movie called Neon Maniacs. The idea of a horror movie that featured more than one killer totally blew my 12-year-old mind. I couldn't wait to see this movie. Then I waited and waited, and eventually in October 1987, I was able to tape it late night on HBO. It wasn't what I expected. It was strange, slow, and it seemed that it just ended with no explanation. I watched it twice in that first day. I would watch it again and again and again. The more and more I watched it, the more and more I became fascinated by it. For years, I'd keep returning back to this movie. Who were the Neon Maniacs? Where did they come from? Why? and writer for Bloody Disgusting. How would you describe Neon Maniacs to someone that's never heard of it? I would say maybe the best way to explain this, and again, going back to Mark Carducci's kind of words, where Neon Maniacs is not a literal title. I think he described it as like the neon being electric punk energy. And I feel like punk energy probably is the perfect way to describe Neon Maniacs. It is very DIY punk horror. Uh, does it all make sense? No. But is it somehow 
infectious and endearing anyway, despite it being a little bit messy? Yes. My name is Brad Henderson. I was, you know, probably 10 or 11 when I first saw it. And, like, it was something, like, I was so kind of enamored by it because I felt like it was like a sequel of a movie that was taking all these characters from other movies, like all these like Soldier, Doc, they all had their own like slasher movies and monsters that they were in and this was like the Expendables of Horror or some shit. And so I was just kind of blown away by like how many killers there are, you know? I mean, I'm used to watching slasher films where there's one killer or you know, there's a few monsters or something but there's 12 of these things, you know? My name is Patrick Bromley. It just felt like a movie that I had never quite seen before. This oddball film with cool creatures and cool music and this implied sort of universe and backstory that's never really spelled out. It introduces its own sort of iconography right off the bat where you you're looking at all these cool monsters and you're like, I feel like I've seen these before, but they're also totally original. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. I think the thing that I love about this the most is it's just a fucking mystery of like, how can a movie that's made like shot in Los Angeles, 80s kind of, you know, big effects movie, just like be a ghost town. Like no one, like no one really talks about it. Just like some of the worst fucking movies ever made, like horror movies have like long oral histories. And this one just doesn't have it. Episode 1, Mark Patrick Carducci and the Bridge. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the first episode of In the Shadows and the Neon Maniacs, a podcast where we take a deep dive into the 1986 cult horror classic, Neon Maniacs. In this episode, we'll start at the very beginning. We'll be focusing on the film's writer and creator, Mark Patrick Carducci was born in New York on November 18th, 1954. My name is Gary Girani. I'm a, uh, a writer of fiction and nonfiction, and I've done films like Pumpkinhead and uh, recently a John Travolta film, Trading Paint. So how did you meet Mark Patrick Carducci? Uh, when, when, when I was a, a kid, I was a movie fanatic, of course, and I was um, going around to all the local movie theaters to grub stills and posters and maybe other things that they hadn't thrown out. We're talking about the 60s now, okay? It's a relative age of innocence. Um, and uh, lo and behold, I found out that there's another guy that's doing the same thing. Uh, I lived in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Mark lived in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. We're just a bus, bus ride away. So at one point, I'm at the RKO Diker Theater at the same time he is. <laughs> and he says, you know, I, I, and we met and we shook hands and it was like, it was great. And we were, we were, you know, what were we? we were like teenagers, whatever we were. And then we went out and, and, and had a piece of pizza. And uh, it was funny. I remember Mark uh, testing me to see if, if I was of the true faith, right? You know, so he said, well, what's the best science fiction TV series I've ever made? It's a trick question because most people are gonna say Star Trek on, on Reflex. But I said, no, no, The Outer Limits. He said, oh, okay, okay. Uh, that meant a fellow monster kid, you know, and, and <laughs> listen, I love Star Trek. Star Trek is, is, is great. 
But that showed right away what we had in common. It was the, the shock, spooky uh, aspect of science fiction that appealed to us. Uh, even though we might like Sense of Wonder, Man's Final Frontier, uh, it was a oogie boogie monster coming at you that, that kind of appealed more to us. So we were definitely cut from the same cloth. Well, my name is Jim Ruland. I'm a writer in San Diego, and my connection to Neon Maniacs is personal. My cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci, wrote the film. My cousin wrote for Cinema Fantastique, and some of those assignments would take him onto the set of films. He was able to interview a number of you know, leading directors of the day, from Martin Scorsese to Brian De Palma, and Walter Hill, and was on the set during the shoot for The Warriors. And it's in his interview that he happened to be there on the day where they shot that famous Warriors. Come out to play. Warriors, come out to play. Um, all that was not in the script and was completely improvised. And Mark just happened to be there and watch it all unfold as the hearse rolled down the street. Sometimes like when I'm watching an older film in particular, you think about all the, all the people who are maybe in the film who are no longer with us, but also the people who are behind the scenes and aren't there anymore. Uh, it's kind of a odd feeling to watch that movie and know that that Mark was there. Mark was pretty clear in that interview that he wanted to write about a gang of monsters. Carducci originally explains his intention of the film. I wanted to do a horror film that was also an action movie. I wanted to do one that had set pieces, very long action set pieces, which opened real big, and then the movie actually slows down for maybe 15 minutes while we develop the characters, and then do set piece after set piece. So they get linked by minimal connective tissue. Everybody wants something that's really relentless. I was inspired somewhat by the Warriors. Neon Maniacs is a supernatural gang film. That's really what it was. It was an East Coast Warriors horror movie. These are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? The Furies. The Boppers. The Hi-Hats. The Lizzie's. The Turnbull ACs. The Gramercy Riffs. Riffs! And these are the Warriors. We know about the Warriors. They're a heavy outfit. They're from Coney Island. Warriors? You guys are the big dudes, huh? Now, they're in the Bronx. We're going back. 27 miles behind enemy lines. It's the only choice we got. They've got one way out. They've got one chance. They've got one night. 
Delta Warriors. Mark Patrick Carducci tells Fangoria, the title Neon Maniacs came from a poem he wrote while he was a freshman in college about the real-life motorcycle gang, the Hells Angels. He later decided it would make a great title for a monster movie. Seeing that Mark was interested in the Hells Angels, I wonder if this is where his fascination with gangs came from. Or was it because of the many gangs that occupied Brooklyn in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? Or was it the multiple gang movies that sprung out of 1979? Robbie Benson in Walk Proud, the toughest test it ever took to break a man or make one. Walk Proud, rated PG. Two brothers fight to survive, and they meet at a point of honor where the only solution is revenge. But to really understand, you've got to live through Boulevard Nights. The Wanderers, too crazy to run. Too proud to hide. Well, I don't want to see you run. Are you scared? Too good to lose. The Wanderers are coming. Not yet. And you'll never forget them. Time is running out. And something's got to explode. They were old enough to know better, but too young to care. And now this town is over the edge. Or was it the actual neon maniacs that were terrorizing the city? Well, John, violence by street gangs has inspired a new movie, and the movie called The Warriors may be inspiring even more violence. Paramount Pictures has asked the 670 theaters showing The Warriors to put on extra security. The latest outbreak of violence associated with the film occurred early yesterday at the IND subway station at 42nd and 8th. Police say 12 young men went on a rampage. 12 young men went on a rampage. Now, there are 12 new reasons to be afraid of the dark. Paramount Pictures says the incidents of violence associated with the film are really isolated cases. Theaters in the Bronx and Queens showing the film said they've had a number of problems. And in California, two theaters have stopped showing the film after an 18-year-old was stabbed to death and a 19-year-old was shot and critically wounded. A year after the Warriors' release, Mark Patrick Carducci started writing The Unmaniacs in 1980. In February 1981, Stephen Mackler, a New York indie film distributor, optioned the script. On January 7, 1982, Carducci registered a 123-page screenplay to the Copyright Office. For those who aren't aware, one page usually equals a minute of screen time. So his original draft would have been at least a two-hour movie. At the time, Mark was playing around with that. We were kind of a little separated at that point. Uh, he was doing his thing. I was very busy with my, my, my book and with Tops and with whatever else was going on. But uh, uh, he had told me about it, and I knew he was doing it, and he gave me a copy of the script. I remember reading it on, the pl on a plane, probably going to California to select more pictures for the next top Star Wars set. But anyway, I was just doing my thing, going back and forth. I'm on the plane, I'm reading this, and I'm going, 
holy shit, Mark really nails something special here. Mark's screenplay to Neon Maniacs is a brilliant horror screenplay. The movie that was made from it is pathetic when compared to what Mark originally wrote. He wrote it in what we used to call the Walter Hill style, which is the descriptions are very, very terse, poetic, wise-ass, as opposed to, and it's gotten worse and worse for poor screenwriters over the year. Now your descriptions just have to be as bland as possible because the filmmakers, who are all insecure maniacs in their own right, uh, uh, don't you dare tell me uh, how to do this shot or whatever. You look at old screenplays where the screenwriters were living through the movie. And yeah, maybe they were writing a little more than they should have in terms of camera direction and whatever. But now it's gone the other way where the filmmakers are so, it's my vision that, that your descriptions have to be as bland as possible. What Mark did by using what we call the Walter Hill style, it, it would be very snappy. And I remember when I read the screenplay to Alien, and that's kind of what also influenced when the chestburster or whatever, Kane is dead, you know, very dead, period. You know, it's all like edgy, quick, poetic, and, and, and part of the fun is just like reading those descriptions, which again, he kept, Walter Hill, you know, that style keeps it brief, but it's a way a writer can show off his chops in a different way. And, and, and reading that script, the way Mark wrote it in that style originally, uh, I thought was such a joy. And, it, and, and the way that script was written, like I say, it snapped the, the, the script was written as if the movie had been directed uh, by Paul Verhoeven when he did Robocop, you know, uh, 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 where everything, the violence, the humor, everything, that script played the way that movie played. And the final version of the movie, as you know, does not really play that way. I mean, it's got some of the ideas come through, but it needed uh, that extra thing we're talking I think part of my fascination and fondness for Neon Maniac stems from the fact that it was Mark's first movie. And so there was a lot of, you know, sweat and creativity and anxiety and worry and hope. I mean, it was his dream to make a monster movie and it took a very long time for it to come together, but it did. He sold it and then it took an even longer time to get made, but it got made. And being a writer and understanding like a certain sentimental attachment you have to your first work because you don't know anything about anything or how the business works. You just have an idea and a story that you wanna share. And it takes a lot of determination to see it through to the end. Then two years later, in August 1984, it was announced that Sync International Productions was to start production on October 1st with a budget of $2.5 million. The plot was described as a horror sci-fi fantasy centering on young killers living under a bridge who are discovered by a trio of heroic teenagers. It may seem strange, but Neon Maniacs was a very personal movie 
for Mark. And the reason for that is, is that it was originally set in Brooklyn. He grew up in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and it just so happened that they were building the Verrazano Narrows Bridge when he was a kid. And he lived uh, close enough to the bridge where he could go down and watch them build it. And it was a fairly fascinating thing for a young kid. And near the base of the bridge on the Brooklyn side, there's this pyramid-shaped structure that he watched them build. And uh, if you look at it's still there today. And if you look at it, it's probably filled with snow removal equipment or lawnmowers or something like that. It's not terribly impressive, but it's a strange looking structure. It's definitely there. And it really captivated Mark's imagination when he was younger. And in his mind, it was a conduit to another world. Already a thing of beauty, spanning the narrows at the mouth of the Port of New York, the Verrazano Bridge, as it nears completion, again becomes an exciting subject for your newsreel cameraman. Concrete anchorages embedded far below sea level support the mighty weight of the span's incredible steel tonnage. The longest suspension bridge in the world about to take its place as a new world wonder. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, okay, totally important to this, to this film, which, which probably killed it right off the bat. This movie is about Brooklyn. This movie is Saturday Night Fever 2. This movie was, was all about those flavors. It was originally the Verrazano Bridge, and Mark Carducci and I would spend hours walking up and down Shore Road, passing that exact place where we knew all these guys that worked, you know, fell in there and were covered over with cement or, or entombed in the Verrazano Bridge. Now, Travolta talks a little bit about this in Saturday Night Fever when he's sitting there with his girlfriend, and they're talking about the making of the Verrazano Bridge. You know all about the bridge, don't you? That's right. I know everything about the bridge. You know what else? They got a they got a guy buried in the, in the cement. Yeah. Know how it happened? Well, they was working on it apparently at the time, and they um, they, I guess they were pouring the cement, and he slipped off, you know, on the upper part of the bridge, and uh, you know, fell in. <laughs> Fuck. What a way to go. So everything about Neon Maniacs, when that card comes up and it says Brooklyn, even the Maniacs, the whole flavor of the piece should have been Brooklyn. We lost so much when it was transferred over to the West Coast and San Fran is not, is not Brooklyn. It's got a whole different persona and it, 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 it could never be as, as uh, its destiny really should have been a film shot in Brooklyn, the Verrazano Bridge, and being done by, like I say, one of these hip directors who understood how to do it. That would have been Neon Maniac. It'd it, 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 it never be the same, never be the same in California. And we knew that, but this is showbiz. The fact that your movie was getting made at all, it's so funny because 
Mark didn't even know, like at first he's, he's saying, you know, uh, oh, you'll be the, the last virgin in Frisco. So they don't call it Frisco anymore. It's San Fran if you're young and hip. Frisco, it's like you're in an old Edward G. Robinson movie or something. You know, so we were, you know, it's, it's funny because that was like all these little things, right? Whereas with Brooklyn, we grew up in Brooklyn. We knew the nuances. The way Saturday Night Fever was Brooklyn, Neon Maniacs was Brooklyn. Where do you go when the record is over? John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever. I'm Armando Munoz, a former friend of Neon Maniacs writer Mark Patrick Carducci. And so he was going to take an existing landmark there and kind of give it, a, you know, a mythology that people could latch on to. And the location got switched and then it just becomes kind of a metal door under a famous bridge, which isn't is, you know, it doesn't have as much resonance. And so I can see that being a disappointment. And plus, I think the movie would have certainly succeeded more if we just had a little more peak at that portal, much in the same way Phantasm gives us two poles and a peak. And you, just that you see a little something or you get that little bit of added mythology and suddenly there's this whole other world out there. And I can see how Neon Maniacs could have come out, you know, how, how that must have been more into the first, his original story. So again, you know, I can see where Mark had even more potential where certain things got pulled back through studio or whatever, any other realities they had, budgetary or creative conflicts at the time. It's interesting to think about what a New York-based mid-1980s Neon Maniacs would have looked like, especially when you take a look at other independent horror movies made in New York around the same time. Basket Case, Street Trash, Slime City, Maniac, Chud. These films use the aesthetic of New York City to a profound effect. Imagine the haunting spectacle of the Neon Maniacs stalking at night through the dark and gritty streets of Brooklyn with the New York City skyline in the landscape as their surroundings. It's crazy to think how differently Neon Maniacs would have been or what it was intended to be. But that wasn't the case because the cameras finally began to roll on October 15, 1984, and the Golden Gate Bridge would now go on to replace the Verrazano Bridge. And the majority of all the shooting would take place around Los Angeles. Well, it's a pleasure. My name is Catherine Ballin, and um, I was the production designer on um, Neon Maniacs. Even though they only gave me an art director credit, but I was the only one, so therefore I was the production designer. In the film, towards the beginning, there is a feature, a set that keeps coming back throughout the film, and I guess take a certain symbolic place in the movie, and it's those doors. There's always those doors, those doors that open onto we don't know what. And actually, that's more or less what ends the film. It is what begins the film, and it is what ends the film. In the story, it appears that it's, there are doors that are below the bridge, uh, the Bay Bridge, I guess, and that's where the maniacs are hiding. In fact, we shot below uh, the Hollywood Reservoir. There is, a, I don't know if you know it, there's a beautiful lake in Hollywood and there is a bridge that crossed the lake, it's a reservoir, 
and there's a sort of a bridge that cross and at the bottom of the bridge it, it's a sort of a wilderness you've got some big arch and it was probably something built around the 30s so it's pretty beautiful big stone arches and the director told me okay there's those arches you know a little greenery a little path in the in the grass and this is going to be our doors so of course there is no doors and so we we i designed the doors and we had them built in a building company and we received them because again we have such a, a low budget we painted them uh, they were in wood they were designed in wood and then my crew and i we painted the door and we aged them to make them look like metal and of course with the movie magic you add the metallic door opening and it becomes those ominous metal doors and and they they look pretty cool actually for for wood doors my name is Nat Bocking and i was the assistant art director on neon maniacs Yes, yeah, I must I worked on the first LA part because I know that other parts were done elsewhere. I knew that the I mean I think there were like establishing shots done in San Francisco or something because we were supposed to be under the Golden Gate Bridge. Um but I think and I again I haven't seen the movie to confirm this but I have some recollection that we were down at the LA River and you know which was supposed to be under the bridge. So um but I can't remember what what that was but it was it was you know a standard hollywood thing i mean i've done that on many other movies i did a movie called maniac cop which is as almost as as famous as neon maniacs and uh we shot it all in la but all the establishing shots are done in new york so they went out to new york with a handheld camera and uh did guerrilla filming of the uh st patrick's day parade and then we recreated the parade in la uh with extras and everything and the two are cut together and it's pretty obvious <laughs> but you know uh i know we're talking about neon maniacs uh, but is that that was the sort of thing that was happening you know i knew there were establishing shots of things that were going to be cut into what we were doing that wraps up today's episode Thank you for listening to the first episode of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. The music track you are hearing now is provided by Remix Sample. The title of this track is titled Cyberpunk Blues. You can find a link to the song in our show notes. The show is written, produced and edited by your host, Steven Scarlatta. Our podcast opening and closing theme music is by Shane McKinney. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate and share this podcast so we can reach more horror fans like yourselves. Thank you so much again for listening and until next time, stay out of the shadows. <laughs> <laughs>